Go back to Matthew, and I'm going to roll through kind of quick uh, to kind of keep moving. So we've been in Matthew for a long time, but that's because we're not in a hurry. So Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to pick back up. I've heard a lot of people preach about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and kind of that's not where we're at. But in that moment when he does, I've heard a lot of people use the analogy or preach about how what a this beast of burdens blessing to carry the Messiah, even though he was just a dumb donkey or a beast of burden, whatever, that he carried the Messiah into Israel on his back or into Jerusalem. And that's a pretty story, but that's not really what that's about. And being a disciple, carrying the Messiah carries a much heavier burden than just him sitting on your back. It's draining. It's heartbreaking at times. It's frustrating. It's life-threatening. It's impossible, actually. I mean, it's impossible. But it also carries the greatest blessing, the greatest reward that you can imagine. Because you have access to him. And he makes all things possible. All right, go to chapter 14, verse 1. It says, at that time, Herod... Now, y'all going to get some history today because my head spun so much trying to sort this out. I made it easy for us, okay? So, but it took me a while. That time, Herod the Tetrarch, which that's basically a governor. It's, it's a, like a puppet king. He sees himself as king, but he's not. Who's king? Caesar, right? Rome rules. So, but he's kind of placed and allowed to rule as a puppet king, so to speak, or a governor. That's what, what that really means. He heard about the fame of Jesus. So you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. But in Luke 3, verse 1, it tells you the rulers at the time period. Here's the rulers. Fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetriarch of the region of Atria and Tachinochus, or however you say it. I didn't rehearse these names. I probably should have. Uh, Lysanias, who is tetriarch of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into all the region of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. Now, what we're reading is sometime after that, because what's happening is Herod is hearing about the fame of Jesus, and he's recalling John. So John's already dead. So what we're doing here is we're reading what happened to him. And he said to his servants in verse 2, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work within him. Do you think he thinks it's a good thing that he's raised from the dead or a bad thing? You know what I mean? Bad thing. He's, He's kind of afraid. And it's Jesus now. Remember, it's Jesus he's looking at. So now he's kind of afraid of Jesus because Jesus is generating this following and doing miracles. And it's a lot like what he perceived in John. And he's the one responsible for John's death. And in fact, you'll find out that he will begin to hunt Jesus too. So here it tells you this is John the Baptist. This is one of the rare times where he actually bears the title. Like some think we gave him that title. That's not true. It's in the word. And here's a case. Some say he bears that title because it was to differentiate him from other Johns. But unfortunately, the Bible doesn't usually do that. That's why you have John Mark and Mark and Mark and John Mark and all these names that get mixed up. I think, as do some others, that the reason that they mention that is because he his baptism was unique. His baptism was different. Baptism was very frequent. It happened all the time, even in John's day. But 
what they would do is they'd go, and you guys have been with me a long time. You know, I'm an Old Testament junkie, so you've heard all this. But they would go into the mikvah or the baptismal pool. They walk in, and you would, you know, dunk yourself. So you baptize yourself. But these people are coming to John, and John is baptizing them. John's baptizing those who are repentant uh, for their sins. And it's a picture of what the Messiah is going to do. Remember, he was supposed to prepare the way. Messiah is going to do the same thing. Messiah is going to come and complete that work. Messiah is going to be one who also takes the sins of the people, in this case, on himself for those who have repented. And he's going to die for others. As John was baptizing for others, Jesus is going to die for others. So he's preparing this way. And it's John's fame here and John's influence, just like Jesus that speaking about Herod and his sins, it led to his arrest. Look at verse 3. Herod's recalling, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So back in Luke 3, we had this guy Philip. So this is a different Philip. There's actually two Philips, so that doesn't help either. Hold on, we're gonna, I'm going to explain it, so just hold on. Uh, for the moment... Herod's married to Herodias, which is his brother's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, that's a huge thing. Leviticus 18, 16, Leviticus 20, 21, Leviticus. There's several places in Leviticus that talk about this. If John just said it's God hates it, that'd be one thing. But John is saying it's not lawful. That's a big deal, because that implies that this person he's speaking to understands the law. Or at least is familiar with it, or at least knows it. He's not just a random sinner. He's somebody that should know it. And he says, and though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So it's kind of that. One of the other Gospels kind of gives you the impression that he was also a bit afraid of him. And kind of, I feel like, treated him almost like a talisman. Like he's a he's a holy man, so I don't want to necessarily kill the holy man, bring bad on me. And also might get good from keeping the holy man around. But he's also afraid because he's got this huge following. Historians record that John was arrested by Herod and jailed for maybe as long as two years. And most believe that John's ministry was only about three years long. So put your brain around that. The vast majority, if that's the case, of John's ministry, he was locked down. You know what I mean? I mean, if I'm John or a disciple of John, I'm wrestling with that one. Okay, so here's the issue. You're going to appreciate it. I promise. <laughs> I give you some. I had to do this. And I couldn't get my brain right. Normally, you know, we don't care. We just blow over it. But y'all know me. I don't blow over anything. So if I can't understand it, then I can't explain it. If I can't explain it, I'm not going to teach it. So y'all get all of it. So you had Herod the Great. Okay. Herod the Great is the one who kills the babies when Jesus is born. Okay. He's the one from the top down. Then you have these sons. Aristobulus or Aristobulus, however you say it, Philip, Herod, Antipas, that's the guy we're talking about, and Archelaus. Uh, Herodias and Herod Agrippa, these two are actually children of this guy. The reason they have this up here is because even though she's a children, a child of Aristobulus, she married Philip, her uncle. And you're going to find out that what John's mad about is Antipas takes his niece, basically, from his brother. So this thing gets way twisted, and it, it gets worse, okay? It gets worse. There's also another Philip in the list, too. All of these, by the way, all of these men, children of Herod, Herod the Great, 
are different of different moms. He's got different moms all the way across the board for most of these kids that he has. There's another Philip by another wife I don't have listed up there. But Herod Antipas is the guy we're talking about, okay? Herod Antipas was married for nearly 30 years to another woman. Herod the Great, his dad, had, this is why the Jews were so unhappy with him. His father was an Edomite, which is kind of the region of North Jordan, and an enemy of the Jews, but his dad had committed to Judaism, even though he was an Edomite, not really a Jew. His mom, Herod the Great, his mom was a princess with this people group called the Nabataeans, and they pretty much ruled all of the area east of the Jordan River. So like Jordan, modern day Jordan, modern day Arabia, under the south, like around the Dead Sea, connected over to the Mediterranean Sea. So they were controlling trade routes and all that. Well, Herod the Great came from that family. But when he began to rule in Jerusalem or in Judea, I mean, he went to war with them fighting for territory and land. And they solved the battle because the king of that land, the king of the Nabataeans and Herod the Great, arranged a marriage between Herod's son, Antipas, who was a teenager at the time, and this other king's daughter. And they were married for nearly 30 years. Seemed like a sure win here. But when Antipas begins to rise to power and the different regions are kind of ruled by these different guys, Philip rules a region, but they don't really rule because they're under the government of Rome. But anyway, when Herod Antipas gets in charge, Herod Antipas goes to Rome after 30 years of being married to his wife, this princess, he goes to Rome and he meets his brother Philip in Rome, who lives there at the time, and he meets uh, Herodias and her daughter Salome and goes insanely crazy in love with Herodias, who's also technically his niece, and woos her over by telling her, if you're up here in Rome with Philip, you might have some authority and some power and you might be a rich family, but you're never going to be a queen. If you come with me, you could be a queen. The idea of being a queen persuades her. She ends up going with him, but she won't go unless he gets rid of his wife. She, even though polygamy would have been accepted in, well, it wouldn't have been by the Jews, but it would have been accepted by the Romans. She won't do it. She's like, it's me or nobody else. I'm queen, only me. So he's got to divorce his wife of 30 years. He's not going to do that. It's much easier to arrange her death or something because he doesn't need a political incident. She finds out about it. And when he comes home, she fakes being ill, says she needs to get away for a while and ask permission to go down to the Dead Sea area to a huge palace and a fortress that they had built down by the Dead Sea to get refreshed. And he says, okay, sure, good idea. He lets her go. She goes down there. And when she gets there, she had arranged for her father, who's this king, and he sent an army to get her, a commander and an army to get her and escort her back home uh, to be with him. And you would think that would have caused an international incident, but Herod didn't blink an eye and moved Herodias and Salome right down to be with him and said, okay, we're we're on, we're going. Interestingly enough, that same place, uh, Josephus records, that that same place where she went to try to get away from down by the Dead Sea is where... Herod had John imprisoned in that same fortress. 
So either way, that's the story. The former wife goes back home. They, the capital city of the Nebataeans was Petra. So if you know anything about Petra, that's where the, that's where she ended up going back to to get away. Now he's there and he's got his brother's wife, who's also his niece and his brother's daughter. I mean, it's just a mess. You see how it's a mess. It's a mess to even sort all this out. This is why John is so harsh. I mean, just imagine this is the king and the potential queen of the Jewish people. And technically speaking, he's not even a Jew. Not technically speaking, he's not. It's a mess. And he's incredibly irritated about it. John is, and lets him have it. You know me, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible is Deuteronomy 17, because it gives the rules for a king. And what, what was the biggest rule? If you may not even remember, there were three or four. There were some don't, three don'ts and one do. The only do was the king had to handwrite his own copy of the word. Had to, him personally had to handwrite his own copy of the word. That's what this man's supposed to be doing if he's the king. And instead, all of this, you know, craziness is what's going on. I think Jesus may even have this in mind later when he said in Mark chapter 10, verse 11, he said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, there's all kinds of teaching on that. But I think in a lot of ways, Jesus might have had this very thing in his brain because this is what's going on. So the question is, if you're John, if you're a disciple of Jesus, what do you do? If he's called you to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. As a disciple, what do you do? Do you, you're calling people to repent? Do you speak out against this thing directly? Do you accept the consequences if you do? You know, I think John's disciples might even have thought, hey, kingdom's at hand, the Messiah's here, according to John. John's standing up to the king. Maybe John's going to overthrow the king and Jesus is going to reign. You know, the disciples were blown that Jesus died, even though he said he was going to. Imagine what John's disciples are trying to figure out. Why is he in jail for two years? Where's this going? But he spoke up. Now, I'm going to tell you this, too. This is not, and I've heard it said before, but I promise you, this is not your stage for political argument. Not your stage for, for arguing with politics or politicians that you don't agree with. And I'm going to tell you why. Because who is the person in charge? I'm, I know God. Let's not go there. Who's the person in charge of the land? You said it a minute ago. Rome. Caesar. Why isn't John going straight to the top and saying, Caesar, you're a sinner? Why isn't John going to Pontius Pilate, who's reigning at the time, and saying, you are a sinner? Why is he going to Herod? He's the king of the Jews. What's Herod supposed to know? It's not lawful. He's holding someone who claims to be a leader of God's people accountable is what he's doing. He's not just attacking atheists. He's not just attacking politicians that don't agree. He's not just, you know, attacking the social issues or the biblical issues of the day. He's attacking and he's calling somebody who claims to be the leader of the Jews Definitely lost. No doubt the man's lost. But but he's claiming to be an authority on God's word. He's claiming just by his position. He's claiming to be a leader of the Jewish people and God's people. And he's, in that case, he stand up. He's saying, no, this is not OK. Look at verse six. 
When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company. His language there is pretty rough. Some of it suggested she may have been naked. She may have, either way, she was a seductive dance. And it pleased Herod. Pleased is also, imagine, you know what's going on here. Now he's lusting after his, I'm lost, niece, great, great niece, great niece. Now he's lusting after his great niece, stolen daughter, whatever else you can say. So he promised with an oath, he's drunk, surely. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she may ask. Mark says up to half his kingdom. But the dumb thing is he has no kingdom. He's a tetrarch, so he doesn't even have a kingdom anyway. Um, Josephus records ultimately with Salome that she went on to marry her other great uncle, Philip. So she, not this Philip, not her. She goes back and marries another one of these great uncles, Philip. And it, the way it's recorded by Josephus says it made Salome both sister-in-law and aunt to her mother. And it made her her own great aunt. It's a mess. Verse 8, verse 8. Uh, prompted by her mother, prompted by her mother. So Herodias, uh, after Salome gets this offer from dad, from, uh, dad, uh, whatever, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So imagine the anger of this woman, Herodias here, you know, she's been not just defamed, she lost her shot at being queen. This prophet, this holy man has just absolutely annihilated her publicly and, I mean, she may still stay where she's at, but she's never going to rule the Jewish people. They're never going to allow it. They're never going to see her that way. She's never going to earn their respect. She's never going to be recognized as a as a queen. Um, and this man's been in prison for maybe, let's say, two years. It may not have been that long, but let's just say, yes, even it's a year, however long. He's been in prison. And as long as he's still alive, he's still a burden He's still got a mouth. He's still got disciples. He's still a constant reminder of their situation. He's always drawing attention to it. Just the fact that he's even locked up because you got people wondering why he's locked up. Verse nine. And the king was sorry because of his oath and his guests had commanded it to be given. He's got witnesses there. He's got to stand on his word. Actually, he didn't have to, but he did. He's not sorry about John's life. What's he sorry about? Why is this a problem for him? Huh? His, yeah. Yeah, he's got to save face, his own image. But if he kills John, he can save face with the people that he made the oath to. But not the people he rules. So he's created his own little international, or not international, but political incident here by running his mouth. You kill John. You risk a riot or even worse. You risk that you killed your your holy man and the wrath of God comes back on you. You might be cursed for doing that. Mark records that Herod feared his righteousness and listened to him, but didn't understand him. Herod never really understood what John was saying, but boy, it sure sounded holy and was a little bit afraid of him. I bet John was a pretty intimidating dude. You know what I'm saying? If you ever see any Christian movies about Jesus and John's in it, he's usually a pretty hard guy. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, there's some pretty crazy little echoes of Esther in this, which is interesting because I know we're studying Esther as a church. And uh, one commentary said this, perhaps the gospel wants the reader to take confidence in the sovereign hand of God 
even as it tells the sad and sordid tale of John's death. Just as God used the debauchery of one king's drinking party to work salvation for the Jewish people, he's talking about in the story of Esther, so too he used the death of John the baptizer to prepare the way for salvation. Just as Vashti's, this commentary suggests that Vashti was killed. Actually, there is some uh, Jewish history that says that she was beheaded. I don't know if we went over that. Some say exiled. It doesn't actually tell you in the Bible what happened to her, but there's some Jewish commentary that suggests she was beheaded. Either way, this one goes with that. It says, just as Vashti's death created the opportunity for Esther to succeed her as queen, John's death moved the spotlight to his successor, Jesus. Kind of a cool little twist. Anyway, verse 10. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And then she brought it to her mom. That probably took a couple of days. That didn't happen that, that second. Um, it is quite disgusting, isn't it? Didn't, didn't happen that day. Uh, probably if the party was lasting for days, which is likely, then maybe they went and did it, brought it back. However it worked, uh, they went and did it and brought it back. That's just a picture of how wicked the enemy is. I mean, not just beheaded, displayed beheaded. Why do you think, now let's get to the spiritual side. Why do you think the enemy, spiritually speaking, wanted that head displayed? Fear. Don't you, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. This can happen to you. Not just can this happen to you, but this is vicious. This is not just life and death. This is ugly. This is disgusting. It says, verse 12, And John's disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. John was a disciple. I mean, it cost him his life. And then his disciples perhaps risked their own lives coming to get him. Imagine their hurt and their confusion over God's will. How is this God's will? Why would God allow this to, of all people, the one that Jesus said, the greatest man that lived? And Jesus went on to say that he's also least in the kingdom. So let's get that clear. But the point being, why would God allow that? Why is, what does that have to do with the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Isn't that what he's been preaching? Isn't that what Jesus is preaching? Now he's being dead and beheaded by a false king because he stood on the word and called him out. Why do you why do you think? And I don't have an answer written here then I'm just asking, you know. Huh? If God did not spare his own son. Dot dot dot. It's all for God's glory. That's right. That's exactly right. John said, in my opinion, one of the most incredible statements in the Bible, and I used to hear Tim LaFleur say it all the time. John said the simple little phrase, I must decrease, he must increase. At the moment when John's popularity is through the ceiling, and he's personally baptized God. Put <laughs> your brain around that and then let go of it because you're never going to understand it. At that moment, I must decrease. He must increase. Ultimately, 
dying. It's decreasing. So look at the very next thing. We're going to go into it. The very next thing is one of the most famous stories in the Bible, but it's not separated from this moment with John. As you mentioned, John's already died, has already been beheaded. But all of a sudden, Herod's recalling it, the gospel writers sticking it in here for us to recall. At the same time, it leads into what goes on next. Watch and you'll see verse 13. It says, now, when Jesus heard this, when he heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. One of the other gospels, I think Mark records that he and the disciples went. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. I think Jesus is, you know, the other gospel, I think it's Mark, we'll look in a second, but it records that he was overwhelmed with ministry and stuff too, and that's part of it, but you put both gospels together and you get that, yes, he's overwhelmed with ministry and with the needs of the people, but he's also now been hit with John's dead. I may be reading into it, but I don't think I am. I think Jesus is a little heartbroken. If you don't think, well, how could Jesus be heartbroken? Well, go back and read about Lazarus. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He saw, he had compassion on the people, you know, wept over Jerusalem. Why would he be, I mean, he knew it was coming, didn't he? Yeah, obviously. Who was John to him? His cousin. Remember, like, it was leaping in the womb with the two of them. I mean, in a human sense, besides all the spiritual stuff, in a human sense, they were literally family. Besides the sorrow of everything else, John John was family to him. Jesus knew he was going to die. Didn't make it hurt any less. You know, if you've ever had somebody in the hospital that you know the time's coming, and even if they die just as healthy and smooth and sweet as can be, it don't make it any easier, does it? Maybe, maybe. A little bit. But you still feel it. I think Jesus just needed time alone. He needed time away from people to like process a second. Ministry is draining, man. I'm just here to tell you. And many of you in this room know it. Because you're either in ministry, served in ministry, or been full-time ministry. It's draining. And Jesus, guess what? He's facing, facing death too. I'm not saying he didn't know it either. But I'm saying maybe in this moment it got real for him a little bit. I know I'm pushing a little there, but I'm just saying, in his humanity, maybe it got very real to him for a second. Matthew 17, I'll turn to it. Matthew 17 says, Jesus is speaking, he says, of John, he says, I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him, but they did do him whatever they pleased. So also, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So he knows the same thing's coming to him. In fact, in his case, it's going to be much worse. Luke records in chapter 13 that Herod was seeking to kill Jesus too. Now, this is slightly later, but still, in verse 31, it says, At that very hour, some Pharisees who, who followed Jesus came and said to him, Get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, I love this. He says, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform curses today and tomorrow, and the third day I'll finish my course. What's he saying there? That that term fox, that old fox, that for us, a fox is a crafty, wise person or 
uh, sneaky or something like that. But that's actually, there's a proverb in there, a Rabbinic proverb. That it says, I'll read it to you. It literally says, when the fox is in his hour, bow down to it. We have a similar proverb to that. This says, every dog has its day. So technically what Jesus is saying is, you go tell that fox, it's his day now. But I'll go when I'm ready. I'll go. That's, that's his kind of slang term for that fox. It's his day now. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to finish what I'm here to do. And when I'm finished, it's done. But the point being that he's after him. Jesus is feeling the weight of this, you know, back in chapter 14. He's feeling the weight of it. Maybe, as you said, that's disgusting. Maybe Jesus is feeling the weight of sin, too. How just disgustingly sick the world is. For which he came to die and loves. And taken upon himself. You know, drinking the cup in the garden when he said, take this cup from me. That that cup was not just a burden. The Old Testament refers to the cup as the wrath of God being poured out. He's talking about taking on sin. And then the wrath of God being poured out on him. Maybe he's feeling all that. Definitely know that they were busy. Mark 6 says they didn't even have time to eat. A little side note with the end of the story on the other two. Herod Antipas eventually had his army destroyed by his ex-father-in-law. Remember the one he ran off? Well, that turned into a war eventually. And Herod Antipas had his whole little army absolutely destroyed by him. And then... Herod Antipas, pushed by Herodias, goes to Rome to try to plead for more authority and more power. And they end up getting betrayed by one of the other brothers while they're up there and sent into exile, died in exile. Salome, supposedly, after marrying her great uncle, ended up contracting some kind of heinous disease, according to history. Don't know what it was. But she ended up first um, a widow and then died of whatever it was. So God had his side of the game, too, which he always does. But I'm not saying that's what it was. I'm not saying they were cursed or whatever, but I'm just saying. Verse 14. When Jesus went ashore, so after he gets away to himself, he went ashore, he sees a large crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Good grief. He got away from ministry, and ministry follows him. One thing I think is awesome about this, by the way, what's this story that I'm going into about? Your heading even says it. Feeding, feeding 5,000, right? I think it's wild that it says in verse 14, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Like that's a, now that's old news. It's funny how fast a big miracle turns into, yeah, okay, that was cool. I mean, if it were you and you had a choice, I can be healed or you can give me fish and bread. Which you prefer. Now, I'm saying of the miracles that are in this story, the feeding a meal to 5000 people. Yes, that's epic. But compared to the fact that he healed their sick, I mean, that's a huge thing. You know, if it were me, I'd be like, man, heal me. I'll find food somewhere. Verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, so these are his disciples. This is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away, go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They're out kind of, not necessarily in the desert, because one of the Gospels records there's grass there. But they're, they're away from town is the idea. And you're not going to catch a bus back in. 
But Jesus said, they need not go away. What? You give them something to eat. You feed them. John's dead. I feel like Jesus is maybe a bit heartbroken. He's definitely exhausted. John's disciples have taken the body and buried it. Herod's still tetrarch. Herodias is still there. Salome is still there. Jesus has done miracle after miracle after miracle. Now he calls on his disciples to do it. I think maybe Jesus is starting to look at that thought. Not, not that he didn't know, but the timing. John's dead. What did John's disciples do? Name a disciple of John. Other than the two that followed Jesus anyway. I'm not saying they didn't do anything. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying I think Jesus is looking at John is dead. Here are his disciples. Jesus now, he's been doing it the whole time. But Jesus is now fully devoting himself to training his disciples. It's time for you to feed them. It's time for you to do this. Everything that he's fixing to do is now going to turn to a burden, so to speak, on them. It's it's your turn. In fact, in Mark's account of this story, in chapter 6 of Mark, in verse 34, it says, When he went ashore and saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Job of a shepherd is to lead the sheep to food. Not to say, go feed yourself and come back when you're full and I'll open the door for you. Job of the shepherds to lead, lead them to food. And Jesus is going to be gone one day and he doesn't need his disciples saying, hey, I'll go find food. They need to lead the people to food. What did he tell Peter after Peter had fallen? Peter, do you love me? You know I do, Lord. What do he say? Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Verse 17. They said, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them to me. That's key. Bring them to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. I love that he did that. Did he need to do that? You can all think about that for a while. It says, then he broke the loaves. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Jesus is more than enough. He is more than enough to provide. Look at verse 20. And they all ate and they were satisfied and they took up the 12 Took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. John's account of this says that uh, after they'd had their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So he wanted every bit of it back in order to display something that there were 12 baskets full left. Now, there's all kinds of discussion about that, and I don't have time to get into it all now. But I can tell you there are some clear similarities. There's 12 of them. That wanted to send away the crowd. There's 12 tribes of Israel to whom they were sent out. I'm not going to get too caught in that. What I want you to see is the things that they were responsible for. They were responsible for ministry. They were responsible for feeding the people. And they would be taken over for Jesus one day. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ in this room, that's you. That's you. You, you, your job is to feed people. They would provide needs for the hungry. Yes, 
physically, but more important, spiritually. Another thing, they couldn't do it in their own power. They could do it, and they did do it, and he told them to do it, but they couldn't do it on their own. They had to bring their resources to him. He multiplied it and gave it back to them to give to the people. That's the way it works. As a disciple, you bring yourself, your resources, all that you have to him. You give it to him. He multiplies it, gives it back to you, and then you give it to the people. They were responsible for delivering it to the people, and there would be enough to satisfy everybody. Another commentary says the significance of this miracle was intended primarily for the disciples. Jesus was illustrating the kind of ministry they would have after his departure. They would be involved in feeding people, but with spiritual food, the source of their feeding would be the Lord himself. When their supply ran out, as with the bread and fish, they would need to return to the Lord for more. He would supply them, but the feeding would be done through them. I love Jesus' argument with the devil. When the devil says, turn the rocks to bread, what does he say? Quoting Deuteronomy. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. I want you to think about this really seriously. Does that mean that the Bible, let's, let's be just as frank as we can be. Does that mean that the Bible can keep you alive physically? In a lot of ways, that's what he's saying. Remember, he fasted 40 days before he came to that statement. I don't know if y'all have ever gone 40 days, but holy smokes. I I can't do I'll do four and y'all don't want to be around me. Look at verse 21. We got to finish. We're done. Verse 21. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Um, This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. The only one. 5,000 men plus women and children. Some say may have been 15,000 people there. I don't know. But. This is an amazing, amazing, amazing miracle. So let me leave you with this. Uh, You know, I never send you out of here without something to think about. A couple things really quick that I pull from me, and we're out of here. As disciples of Christ, okay, if you're a disciple, if you're not, that's another story. If you're a disciple, you're always going to bear a burden, but you're always going to have a blessing. The burden that you're always going to bear, some things I wrote down for me, being hated by the world. Better expect it. Jesus said it happened. You're going to be hated by the world. You're going to be serving him even to the point of death. Now, if you die at 95, fine. If you die in two days, whatever, you're going to be serving him even to the point of death. You're going to bear a burden of calling other people to repent with love. You're also going to bear the burden of calling so-called believers to live righteously. That's not easy. You're going to be burdened by losing people you love. And then handling their care even after death. You're going to be burdened by accepting things from God that you don't understand. Why did he die? Didn't you love him? You're going to be facing the struggle of serving others' needs constantly. Spiritually, emotionally, even physically. And you're going to find it hard to be alone. Even though you need to be at times. Those are all bur- those are the burdens of having the Messiah on your shoulders, so to speak. Blessing, much shorter list, but a much better list. Blessing, you get to take your burdens to Jesus instead of Him being a burden. He's the burden. He's who you carry your burden to. He multiplies it. The other blessing is you are empowered by him to serve. So when you come with a burden, you don't just drop it and walk away. You drop it and he empowers you to go back and to keep serving.
another blessing. You always have him with you. I'm with you even to the end of the age. I'm with you all the way to the end. Man, how awesome is that? If there were no other one, that's good enough. And last, you're always going to have enough to provide for his sheep. You're always going to have enough. We can talk all day about the overflow and all that, but you know that ain't my thing. Don't get me down that road. I'm talking about you're always going to have enough of what it takes to feed who needs it. Cool?